by coming to this meeting and then the end separating. And these things can be so ordinary and commonplace that we 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 take them for granted until it uh, is on a more kind of intense or seemingly more important scale. But the uh, reflective mind isn't isn't particularly concerned about the intensity or the importance of a condition or the quality of a condition, but the the actual experience of the flow, movement, change, flux of the conditioned realm. And so we, we can, uh, we, we do like the sense of security of having like uh, friends that we know what we can depend on in stable conditions, uh, uh, knowing that uh, this is a stable community with a stable teacher and stable sangha and and stable support and and uh, stable friends and people you can count on and and uh, the government stable and and so forth and stability is is uh, gives us a sense of uh, of the, that everything is going to be all right and then when you contemplate life as experience, it's uh, basically unstable as a nature. Dukkha, or in unstable or unsatisfactory. So rather than just uh, endlessly trying to find stability in the unstable, the uh, Buddha encourages us to reflect upon instability, insecurity, not knowing, uh, uncertainty, confusion, uh, uh, feeling of fear, anxiety, worry, uh, emptiness, death, loss, uh, the darkness. Uh, the darkness makes us feel insecure, doesn't it? Because we, we, we like light, where we, light gives us a sense of security. Uh, just notice in modern life, uh, we get very dependent upon electricity, having something even at night where we can we can depend on the electricity if we wake up and we can just switch on the light because darkness is, uh, is makes us feel brings back this sense of insecurity and fear when things change isn't it it makes us feel very insecure if we especially changing is not always changing the way that we want things to change. So the El Nino, the the uh, K, YK2 bug, the end of the millennium, end of the century, uh, the the uh, all the predictions about the the uncertainty of the future. Uh, and the the doom, destruction, death, decay scenarios. Now, all these are things that uh, that kind of excite the mind, but also they're very unsettling. So, with a reflective mind, the ability to reflect on insecurity rather than endlessly trying to prop up yourself with 
false sense of security. So the don't know mind or uh, the future is the unknown. Uh, learning to to be establish awareness in the present, to to be content with the present as it is. The sense of just learning to relax and trust in the state of awareness rather than uh, trying to find security in the insecure. So that the refuge then is what? In the Buddha's isn't in a, in a monastery or in a teacher or in a tradition or in a group of people or even the Sangha, refuge in Sangha doesn't mean uh, a group of people as uh, personalities but in, in the Sangha, the Supatipano, Ujupatipano, those who practice in the right way. Because in, in our humanity, this is our great gift, is that we can, and we have this awakened mind, an enlightened mind, Buddha mind, or the, the ability to pay attention to, to life as we're experiencing it. In all its, in whatever changing forms that it, it, uh, that we experience. Sometimes Buddhism uh, is very upsetting to people when they first uh, hear of it because it it it, it uh, is very direct in this respect. Where sometimes we turn to religion for some kind of security. Tell me what's going to happen to me when I die, kind of security. Or is there a God? Uh, have you have you ever seen God, or do you, have you experienced? God, or uh, is there an afterlife or not? And uh, we, we, many people will uh, find security in the affirmations of, of these positive, uh, affirming the, the, the positive side of there is a God, and if you're good, you'll go to heaven or you'll have eternal life. And these can can give us a, a sense of, of ease and comfort. But basically we don't know. In the terms of, of direct knowing is that we, we don't know what the future will bring, what happens when we die, uh, what will happen in the next uh, century, the next millennium, or tomorrow. And so this is, this is direct knowing, isn't it, that we don't know. Now in the uh, mindfulness, this uh, establishing this awareness around uh, just the without an object in particular, but just as a sense of trusting, relaxing, and opening receptivity to the present. And that is, uh, you know, that, that's easy to say, but to really do that takes uh, a lot of patience. 
and willingness to to trust in uh, in your own ability to do it in just little seemingly insignificant ways. But we like to, it wouldn't be not, like to get enlightened very quickly and just uh, you know have a have a big enlightenment experience and just feel at ease for the rest of our life, never have a worry ever again. And and that would that's the ideal. But life isn't is is a continuous challenge to us because of its changingness. It's not going to we're not going to just get out of it uh, in an easy way. But we are the owners of our karma, heir to our karma, born of our karma, related to our karma and so forth. What does that mean? It means that that the that the whole experience of our lifetime is we're open to it. We're we're willing to to uh, reflect upon it. We're we we're willing to learn from it. Whatever that those conditions might be. So, like old age, sickness, death, is that we're all going to, we're all experiencing these in varying degrees. Old age, and uh, pain, and and uh, disease, death. We have the uh, uh, Lee Graham in the in the Chapel of Rest, lying there, looking very content right now. Tomorrow is his uh, funeral. Impatience and and uh, is is one uh, restlessness and uh, discontentment, doubt, worry. These are the the conditions that we that easily take us over. So. Uh, and, and this is an age where patience is not particularly uh, a virtue that, that is encouraged. And that we're, we're living in a time where uh, we want immediate results, instant results, instant happiness. Uh, not have to wait, uh, and or not to be content, but to always try to make things better and, and, and improve everything all the time. So consider like, Amravati now is kind of it's at a state where it's it's uh, it's kind of reached its uh, uh, summit of uh, it seems to be uh, you know well established um, uh, with spacious buildings and accommodation and enough comfort and so forth. So that there's not a kind of uh, feeling anymore that there's a lot you have to do. This, we've got to do this next and that next. The urgent projects and and that. So uh, sometimes when we do reach this, when a monastery does reach this level, uh, then uh, even though we we've always kind of maybe longed to to have this experience, uh, then we're thrown back on our own. Uh, 
life, how to live here, how to uh, be here in this place, and develop awareness with, with the way it is. Now, I remember in the early days at Chitters, there was a, a common kind of energy of, of uh, working together to, to uh, repair, refurbish, uh, make the place uh, a livable place. Idea of having cooties in the forest and and all the rest, uh, to repair the the uh, derelict house. Uh, the community had a kind of purpose, and and there was a common goal involved. It was quite exciting and thrilling those first five years. And it hurts me talking about living in this damp, old, decaying, moldy house. And yet it was kind of fun in a way. Uh, everybody pitching in and getting getting things done. Of course, looking back, it it's different than the actual when you actually when it was actually happening. Or sometimes in a marriage, people when they're in the hardship, man and wife uh, work very hard and stay together, stick together, and then when they make their million. They, they can't stand each other, don't know what to do with each other, and divorce. So sometimes adversity and struggle uh, unite us when we have a common goal, a common enemy, a common purpose. And so in uh, monastic life, the, the goal is Nibbana, that's our common goal. And, and uh, that is to be uh, reflected upon every day, to, to see that as, a, as that's what we're here for, to realize non-attachment, realize the truth of the way it is, realize the nature of uncertainty and insecurity and not knowing and anxiety and fear, to, re to see those to know those for what they are, rather than to uh, just be uh, uh, determined to, to uh, run away, or dismiss, or deny them. So the holy life is a, is a, is a, is a strange uh, thing in the, in the modern world, because the, the modern world doesn't respect it very much, doesn't uh, recognize its value. Because we're, we are always trying to make things better. And, and uh, there's this idea of a golden age or uh, an ultimate kind of evolutionary goal that we're all aiming for, where everything will be perfect. But in terms of, of our own experience of life, we, we never attain perfection in the conditioned realm that we, we'll never be perfect in terms of perfect physical health or perfect kind of personality or perfect uh, kind of uh, character. Or any place you go, any situation you're in, you find, try to find a perfect place, perfect monastery, perfect situation. 
because the nature of this realm is imperfect, unsatisfactory, insecure. And so we get back to this, this uh, willingness. This isn't uh, something to believe, and, and it would be depressing if, if we just grasp the idea that everything is unsatisfactory and insecure as a, as a perception that we grasp. That's not, that's not meditation, that's stupidity. But it's, uh, it's contemplating the way it is, the truth of the way it is. And the freedom that comes from recognizing the way it is. The freedom isn't through finding security, but through realizing the truth. Living in a community is uh, is uh, is a uh, is another uh, great opportunity for recog for realizing emptiness and anatta non-self. Because I find the thing that myself is all is very much uh, the sense of myself as a personality. Is, is very much comes forth in relationships to others in uh, in my position in my uh, you know the the roles that I'm in or the experiences I have the sense of myself uh, arises in consciousness and it's very much sort of strong uh, in in uh, in, a, in a community especially a community like this Like Amravati is a community where you you have uh, you have uh, quite a lot of eccentric members, and uh, where where there's uh, a lot of you know can be a lot of aggravation because the people are not particularly here because they like each other, they get along, or they they uh, they're harm harmonious with each other. It's very international, and then um, then having uh, uh, the monks and nuns living in the same monastery, and and the, uh, the amount of people living together, of course, uh, is uh, bring can bring up all kinds of of feelings of aversion, jealousy, um, irritation, frustration, uh, exasperation. Uh, feelings of being uh, inferior or not as good as somebody else, uh, feeling of, of being taken advantage of, uh, feelings of being persecuted or uh, not loved or not appreciated, or whatever the feelings may be. Uh, and it's not that these feelings are always... Uh, you know, coming from just nothing that they're totally false. But the important thing is to to trust in the refuge of awakened awareness, rather than think that that you'd be you, you've got to find a place where you're really loved, appreciated, and and you're with your mates in the way that you 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 uh, get along and live in a very harmonious, loving and and happy way.
Not that I'm averse to that, that would be very nice. <laughs> but, uh, but life isn't, isn't going to, uh, so far, it hasn't presented me with that, with that uh, experience. So the the human mind then our mind is it's really universal it's a, it has no limits to it but we place limits on ourselves all the, by our identi identifications me as a person my character my what I like what I think what I want uh, what I think you are how I think you should be or I should be and on and on like this, the, the, the way I can limit myself through just uh, identifying with, uh, with uh, memories or views that other people have about me or whatever. But the, the uh, freedom comes not through uh, trying to change any of this, but through noticing the changingness of these conditions. During this, uh, during the this month with the bhikkhus from Thailand and the uh, all my monks that I trained with in the early part of my monastic life at Wat Pong, remember some of those monks were having a kind of uh, love hate uh, appreciation and detestation and and uh, indifference and all kinds of emotions would, would rise up in my mind in regard to, to uh, these various monks. To Ajahn Chah himself, sometimes I, I've hated him. And so what is that? But it is, it is uh, a reflection, isn't it, of a condition that uh, arises in, in consciousness. Uh, and I get very uh, infatuated or very attached, like the Lumpur Char. And also as much as one gets attached, then one can, e e uh, yeah, one can easily slide to the other of being totally averse and disillusion with somebody. So these are these these kind of emotions are not uh, something that one can trust. Some of the people that are most critical of me have been people who adored me the most. So you, you look at that and see what where does that come from? Where sometimes they, they they, they, at one point, they could just see me only in 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 uh, superlative terms, and then after a while that changes and it goes into uh, the other, the opposite extreme. But the constant factor in all of this is this uh, mindfulness, because mindfulness isn't a condition 
That's why you can't become mindful, you can only be mindful. It's the awakened, awakening in the present. So it's a very simple uh, attentiveness to the emotions that you are experiencing. And it's not critical or judgmental, it's not it's, uh, mindfulness. When I, when I really trust in being mindful, then I can see a tendency to be critical or whatever, but, but the mindfulness itself is not critical function. It's intelligent, though. It's not, it isn't, uh, there's intelligence, there's uh, purity, there's, uh, it's bright, and it and it's constant. It has a, it has a continuity, a sustain. One can sustain it or rest in it. Rest in the in the in the, in the awareness in the present. Because it's not a created state, not refined. It's not dependent on everything being refined and peaceful and calm and and uh, uh, tranquil. So this is why in the in the refuge of Buddha and Dhamma, the the, the Buddha, the awakened state of being, knows the Dhamma the way it is. Kusala Dhamma, Kusala Dhamma, Pyakata Dhamma, Sukaya Vedanaya Sampayuddha Dhamma, and so forth. Knows the the range, the the spectrum of good and evil, pleasure and pain, success and failure, dark and light, happiness and misery. So the Buddha knows these, knows the Dhamma, the conditions as the Nietzsche Dukkha Nata, the three characteristics that are common to all conditioned phenomena. And the Buddha knows the Amata Dhamma, the, the escape or the freedom of non-attachment to these conditions. And so that non-attachment can only be through awakeness in the present. It's not a created state. It's not a rejection of anything. It's not a controlling, but it's, it's a knowing the way it is. See monastic life as a as a as a you know as a great. I feel I've always felt felt enormously privileged to be a monk. Uh, so it's uh, something that I uh, value and appreciate that I've had an opportunity to to live my life as a monk. So it's, I've never had a, a problem of wanting to to disrobe. That's never never been really uh, something that I've ever 
had any doubts about. I don't, I don't hope it doesn't sound like bragging, but it's just, uh, it's a, by the time I ordained as a monk, I was pretty much aware of the uh, uh, unsatisfactoriness of, of my life anyway, up to that point. And then, uh, living on alms food and uh, just appreciating, like in Thailand, the the uh, opportunity that was made available for me to devote myself to this life. Here in in England, there's, uh, we have a very kind of lovely life, really, in a, in a non-Buddhist country. We're well supported, and the, so that the conditions are uh, quite supportive for mindfulness and, and living a, a mindful life and, and we, we have the, we still follow the traditional uh, Theravada uh, teaching uh, and, and I don't even like to think of it as Theravada or any form of like uh, give it a, a name like that because it is Buddha Dhamma that we're actually uh, practicing Buddha didn't establish Theravada. There's the Four Noble Truths, and so this is the this is the uh, teaching that we that we particularly inc- that we use in our, our life here to reflect the suffering, its causes, cessation, and the path path of non-suffering. Interesting, uh, this cultural conditioning, how, how that affects us. Uh, the, uh, just noticing, coming from a, a Christian background in a, in, a, in a kind of egalitarian society, uh, such as the, well, the United States. So that uh, is my cultural conditioning. It's, uh, that has a, an important influence on conscious experience. And then when just noticing the difference, they just say European people um, in their various ways of looking or experiencing or interpreting life through their cultural conditioning or Asian people. But the awakened state of mind is not cultural, it's transcending of the cultural conditioning. And so this is, this is where the, the first noble truth isn't uh, a, a condemnation of any cultural state or any uh, convention, but a using this very ordinary experience of suffering that, uh, that we have no matter what culture we, we come from, and using that as the awaken, what we awaken to, to suffering, to insecurity, to pain, to uh, feelings of uh, 
um, inferiority or feelings of of uh, anxiety or worry, whatever they might be. And so, this first noble truth is is uh, it's 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 ordinary and common. It's it's not not a a high-minded teaching, but to awaken to suffering, and now that that is, means we change our relationship to suffering, our attitude towards suffering, rather than blaming it on somebody or uh, trying to get rid of it. We open to it. You know, so the idea of the encouragement to understand suffering. Just that alone is, is very profound. Willingness to, to, to look, to willingness to suffer, in other words. Not as some kind of martyr, uh, but as willingness to feel pain or uh, allow anxiety, worry, fear, uh, jealousy, emotions that we don't like and don't want. We're now willing willingly allowing them to be conscious. That's what we call understanding suffering. And you can't understand suffering if you're always resisting it or trying to get rid of it or running away from it or blaming it on on uh, somebody or something. We just uh, the news of this uh, John uh, Kennedy the Jr., the son of uh, President Kennedy, of course, was probably aware of, was, has died in a plane crash with his wife and uh, and her sister. And so this is this is uh, like suddenly uh, a kind of very privileged people. Just disappear into his plane, his plane to a family reunion, and it crashes into the Atlantic Ocean. Not uncertainty, isn't it? It was the gifted, the privileged, the 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 beautiful, the wealthy uh, are not exempt from suffering. And how things can change in a way that that uh, we are totally unpredictable. This is the uh, the uh, earthquake or or the wars, like in Yugoslavia, and the and the uh, starvation and famine in Ethiopia and Sudan, and the AIDS epidemics, and the uh, just ongoing news of catastrophe and tragedy that isn't caused much of it is is natural it's not because of uh, man-made causes necessarily but just nature itself is this way it's unstable undependable uncertain
the thing to challenge yourself is what is what is it that you can depend on in any situation that you're in? So that you know you can you can idealize meditation practice of of a kind of ideal place where there's no loud noises, no disruptions, uh, no demands made on you. Uh, perfect situation where where um, you can just sit and practice according to what you you uh, want to do. Everything is is kind of laid on for you in a nice way. And you're taken care of and and nothing uh, untoward happens. And so we, you know, I remember seeking these kind of situations in my early monastic life. You know, he's looking for the perfect place. And, uh, and, uh, and I was very fortunate. In fact, every time I did that, I got... I, I ended up in some miserable state. So it uh, began to realize this uh, obsession I had was, was uh, you know, that I wasn't going to uh, get what I wanted. Or if I did get what I wanted, it was still was unsatisfying. So then, uh, just by observing them, I began to stop uh, making those demands on life and learning to to just say, what is it now in this situation I'm in that I can really depend on? And that is the state of awakened awareness. I don't expect you to believe that, but I encourage you to, to test this out. It's the simple ability to open to the present and observe what you are, what, what I am feeling. The anxiety or the discomfort or the, or the uh, restlessness or fear that, that one can have in situations. And then contemplating that, that awareness that's not frightened. Fear is, is definitely a condition because it's once you understand fear or you open to fear, then it, 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 it it's like a, it, it, you can see it's a changing condition. It's not a constant factor. But what is constant is the awareness of it. The awareness is like it embraces it. It contains it and it it accepts. It's not controlling, resisting, judging, but willing to let the condition be what it is. And then it, 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 and then it's changing. So, say in monastic life, for example, that's the, the one of the, the, uh, the to me the whole uh, purpose of monastic life is. Uh, that it gives us a, a vehicle, a sense of a convention that is not personal. We ask to, we all depersonalize ourselves quite a bit by joining the Sangha. And it's a shaven head and the robes and the denier and the 
this traditional. It's, 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 we're taking away a lot of personal uh, choices and and opportunities to to uh, uh, do what I want or follow my desires or exhibit myself as a as a personality. So it it helps to uh, if if one uses it in the right way, the masochism, then it it's not to it's not just it's not the intention isn't to just force you into conformity because being uh, a personality is something wrong with it, but it's it's a convention to help reflect our personalities and our our own uh, uh, peculiarities and idiosyncrasies. And it's not reflecting in, in saying there's anything wrong with it, or uh, but getting to notice the impulsivity or the the uh, the way that one operates uh, through the force of habit, through the cultural conditioning, through just the experiences and trauma of our lives. Then the the the, the reason why we can live together is. The only reason we can live together here for very long is through the vinya. Because if, if we didn't have that, then uh, if we didn't agree on a moral level in a restraint, then it would be uh, impossible to, to, to live with, with, with all of us in our own uh, being the individuals that we are, that we could possibly stay together for very long without... Creating uh, heavy comic uh, reaction. So I noticed this in in Thailand, and when I uh, I was the only Barang monk for quite a few years at Wat Uh and so it was uh, learning to adapt to uh, a culture that where everybody had a common cultural attitude that I didn't have. And, and so it was, uh, that was a challenge because it's so easy to English culture, the way English are, or French or Germans or the way we regard Asian Thais or Sri Lankans or things like this is in through judging them according to our own particular cultural habits. But in the 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 the, the value say, of the Vinaya was that that it was uh, a moral uh, agreement. So that that there was this isn't this thing, morality isn't a cultural quality. So this this is like so the pre the the uh, monastic training isn't about ad adopting a particular culture, but it's about uh, agreeing on how we're going to behave with each other if we're going to live together and support each other toward our spiritual goal. So then you are you are able to see your own 
uh, kind of conceit and uh, uh, selfishness and and uh, cultural habits in order to see them in, in, in that reflective mind, to see them as changing conditions rather than as positions that one takes or absolutes that one holds to or fixed principles that you, you can never, uh, you know, adapt or change. I remember when I when I became interested in Buddhism, the um, starting with, with Zen Buddhism. You read these Zen books about the 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 man with no uh, fixed position. And I remember in those days, only Americans were brought up to have opinions about everything. And at least my generation was. And if you don't have an opinion, it means you're stupid. And of course, none of us wanted to be stupid or look stupid, so we managed to form opinions about things that we don't really know very much about. <laughs> and uh, and so you get this very you know, idea of somebody that had no fixed position, sounded like wishy-washy, weak, nobody. Because you, we used to admire people that had very high principles and high standards and and you know, stuck up for righteousness and and goodness and and uh, wouldn't allow evil forces would resist evil at all costs. These were the this is the cultural conditioning that I was uh, uh, condi- uh, that I acquired through my background. Very kind of dualistic. Uh, ways of, of interpreting experience and in terms of all absolutizing right and wrong, good and evil. So this was, um, so you had to fight for the good, you had to resist evil, you had to stick to your principles and the ideals of loyalty and, and uh, all that were, were was given great importance, and and then, of course, these the, the these ideals were so high and so kind of ethereal that you never, you know, even though you you admired them and you tried to to live up to those high principles, inside you felt totally confused and weak and and and. Uh, insecure. But of course you didn't want anyone to know that. So you, <laughs> so you had to kind of promote uh, this, this image of yourself as someone who knows what they're doing, has, you know, has all these views and opinions and will fight for right and, and uh, destroy the evil forces. My interest in Mahatma Gandhi when I was a graduate student was, was one of the things that I found quite threatening and yet fascinating was a Gandhi attitude of non-resistance to evil. Just that, just that, a non-resistance to evil sent a, a tremor of, of fear through my body when I first heard that because 
the, the principal ones resist evil at all costs. And yet Gandhi was obviously somebody of, of great, uh, you know, wisdom and, and uh, daring and, and uh, integrity. And yet not, he, he was, his teaching was based on non-resistance to evil. Or the man of no fixed position. Well, I never could understand that through, in, through the intellect, and so this through the reasoning ability I had. Uh, and then that became more apparent, the value of that, through meditation. Because trying to approach meditation through fixed principles and, and fixed ideas and through just uh, hard work and, and uh, and determination and all the ideals that I had about how to get something done uh, with all the effort and uh, hard work I could put into it, it always seemed to, uh, you know, it, it didn't work. I could drive myself into a state of, of uh, kind of paralysis and depression just through, through exerting too much willpower, forcing too hard, being too rigid. So the, the one of the, the basic teachings I had the Tanjo Kun, my preceptor was who was here, Tanjo Kun uh, Muni, his his main teaching to me when I first became a Samanera was the five faculties, the Satta Virya Sati Samadhi Panya. I remember that first year in, in Nong Kai. Uh, at first I just memorized it like a mantra. Because in those days even the Pali words were hard to remember. So, just repeat them over and over like a mantra. And that, had a, uh, that kept my mind at least uh, thinking that uh, you know, just repeating these these words over and over again was a fairly tranquilizing experience. But then, the, then the, then he said, "Well, satta and panya balance each other, and virya and samadhi, and sati is the the the, the still point, the, the balance point. We have sati, and then there's virya and samadhi." and there's satta and panya. Well, my mind didn't work like that. It worked, first you have satta, then virya, then sati, then samadhi, then panya. It was a, you know, it followed in tandem. One, two, three, four, five. But my logical mind was, was conditioned for that. So I started to figure out things according to, to first this and then that and then that and then that follows that. If you do this, and so forth. So, this was uh, this was the, the, the how the mind worked. But then, in the reflective abilities, satta and panya, isn't isn't a matter of of logic or one uh, following the other, but of balance. 
and wiriya and samadhi, effort and concentration. In those days, I didn't know the difference between effort and concentration. <laughs> I was just using a lot of effort. I thought, you've got to put a lot of effort to get this samadhi. Because the, samadhi, the word samadhi was given, it was a kind of word that this kind of mystical quality to it, that something I didn't have that I had to get through a lot of effort. So then they put a lot of effort into getting this samadhi only to fall apart all the time. Remember I'd put so much effort and I'd get headaches and then I'd get depressed. And then I then I I might get and sometimes I'd get something that seemed like samadhi, but I couldn't keep it. It was very fleeting. And then you read about how the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and determined not to move till he was enlightened. And no, no, I'm, you know, so that's very appealing to a to somebody that is has this kind of goal-oriented uh, mind. And when I went to stay with Ajahn Chah, I mean, he took me to the mental hospital one day in Ubon to visit a monk. A disrobed monk who had, had a, a psychotic breakdown. And you know how he got this psychotic breakdown? Because he made that determination to sit under the tree and not move till he got enlightened. <laughs> uh, and so, I mean, that was a good, I mean, I wasn't happy for the monk, but I, or the ex monk, but it did, you know, one could see that. A lot of these these things taken out of context uh, to a mind that is very conditioned uh, in a very kind of uh, logical way with uh, with ideals based on wor- hard work is good and high principles you can't you have to hold to your principles at all costs and you can't uh, uh, you know don't weaken or slacken or relax but just keep going and and resist evil at all costs. How those those kind of images can really be very deluding, the idea of sitting under the Bodhi tree till you're enlightened. So in uh, in monastic life, I found that the that the uh, that the importance of patience and reflection morality and and learning willing to learn from uh, humbly learn from ordinariness rather than wanting the big experiences all the time so I found you know just in the early years at Wat Pa Pong just uh, my own uh, conceit and resistance to a lot of things uh, of just trying to not and sometimes just not understanding because of the cultural difference not not appreciating not understanding why or why people why they acted like this or what and then making judgment the reflective mind could be uh, aware of that I could see how miserable I made myself through 
being critical of, of the other monk or through holding to my view and, and, uh, and then uh, judging from, from my position. One thing about Lung Phuong Chau was he did seem to be a man of no fixed position. And uh, I remember Ajahn Jan telling me uh, when, when Ajahn Chau had, was uh, ill in the last ten years of his life and, and then Ajahn Jan told me how, uh, you know, taking care of, of Lung Phuong Chau and, and uh, Lung Po Cha's disciples, some of them would just say, would say, I know what Lung Po Cha taught, and, and he didn't teach this, he taught that, and you're doing it wrong, you've got to do it like this, because this is the way Lung Po Cha would want it to be. And uh, they'd have a go at Ajahn Jan, some of the disciples of Ajahn Chah. Because each one had their view, their position about what Lung Po Cha taught. And I remember one time uh, uh, one of Ajahn Chah's disciples was, uh, took me aside and started criticizing. This is before Ajahn Chah was ill, too. Saying, Lung Po Chah used to be really good in the old days, and since he's gotten older, he's not so good anymore. He used to be really strict. And he would really, you know, yell at you and he'd be really tough but now he's he's just you know doesn't do that anymore he's kind of lost it because one can be very attached to views about strictness and and uh, you know hard line and and uh, yeah. fixed positions and this is the way it has to be and if it isn't it's wrong so I asked Ajahn Chah about that, and he said, uh, "He said, well, he said he's he's much happier now than he was in those days." <laughs> and uh, I could and I could appreciate this the way he dealt with issues in the Sangha because he wasn't uh, he he wasn't hard line. There was there was always a, an openness and a reflectiveness. And uh, where even sometimes I would get exasperated because I thought he should come down harder on certain monks than he did. And, and uh, because I could get very self-righteous. But in that I could see, you know, this my own hardness and, and that self-righteousness was, was very... Uh, was when I began to really look at it as experience was, was a very painful kind of mental state to be full of my own sense of rightness. So this emptiness, this, this, uh, the goal that we all share isn't it, is this, to realize Nibbana. Well, to realize Nibbana, to realize, know the liberation through non-attachment. So there's no fix, there's no position you take. You don't attach to Nibbana because there's nothing to attach to. It's not a thing or a state that you attach to. 
whether you can get or create. But it's a realization of non-attachment, no fixed position. So that's the subtlety of it. It's, it, it's subtle and hard to see because the mind is conditioned to take positions, to have views, to have principles, to, to uh, react to things. So in, uh, you know, here in, in so they, they, the, the Sangha life that we share is, is, isn't something to uh, attach to, but to reflect on attachment. To get to, to know attachment, not saying you shouldn't be attached, but to, to open to attachment. To, to recognize, to what does it feel like when you're attached to some, to some view, some opinion, somebody, something? What does it feel like? Is it happiness, suffering? Is it peaceful or miserable? Like, uh, just attached to the view of being right. Because right was, was right, and it was right to be right, and it was good to be right, and you should be right. And so, uh, logically, uh, you should be attached to right, to righteousness, was, was the, how my mind was conditioned to, to think. But then I noticed whenever I get in, in my high horse of righteousness, then I really un unpleasant, I find. Because I can, I mean, I, sometimes I, you know, I used to get, you know, you know the kind of vigorousness that comes from being, feeling you're right. But as a mental quality, it's, it's quite miserable. And it can lead to violence, isn't it? You can kill in the name of righteousness if you're attached to it a view of, right, of being right. So just reflecting on, on, on attachment, sometimes we, we grasp these ideas, so we, we say, you know, you're, you, we have a go at each other, say, don't be attached, you're too attached to the rules, or you're too attached to the teacher, or you're too attached to Theravada Buddhism, or you're too attached to monastic discipline, or you're too attached to this person, and so we we can we we can get self-righteous in our own little way of of going around telling people not to be attached to anything, and then criticizing them for being attached. So you can be attached to the view of non-attachment. That it's not not holding uh, a view of non-attachment that is nibbana, but is realizing. The way to realize non-attachment is to recognize or realize the suffering that comes through attachment.
So that is just to, to, you know, don't be afraid of attachment. Use your attachments for reflection. Reflect on them. Get to, get to know what that is. What does it feel like? What is it like to be attached, to be clinging, to be obsessed with something? And then you, by just by asking that question, the mind, my mind starts observing this, this kind of restlessness or, or kind of strident feeling of or fear of, of losing, or, or whatever, of, of, of letting go of, or not of letting go of something that one really likes, or is very attached to. So in the daily life, step by step, one step at a time, contentment with the, with the goodness of the life. Reflect on the goodness of this life and the goodness of each other. Reflect on, on the goodness that, we, that brings us here rather than endlessly reiterate the, the things we don't like or find fault with each other and the things that uh, upset us about each other. Not to dismiss that, but to also bring into consciousness the, the, the goodness that brings people like ourselves into living in a community like this. And then to, to feel a, a, a rejoice in the goodness of others goodness of the community of the uh, and even though we not we might not be good all the time rejoice in the moments that we are rather than than make a big deal about the the moments that we are not very good so that is take bringing into consciousness remembering the, the goodness uh, of our life of ourselves, of each other, of the uh, tradition that we share. Or we can become very critical of the tradition. Then you don't say things, we don't like this, we don't like that about it. Any convention is something you're not going to like about it. So, but also to remember the goodness of the good, the, 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 that it, in spite of it, flaws or deficiencies, it's goodness to, to have a sense of appreciation, gratitude for that. Uplifts the mind, it, it brightens the mind, gladdens the heart. Where if we just dwell on what's wrong and what we don't like, then, it, then we get just depressed and we can't stay, we can't abide this life that bear it.
So now the uh, opening ceremony is over, and uh, it's a memory. Now we have this temple, and uh, the situation, in all its good and not so good aspects. And so, how are you going to? What are you going to do with it? And uh, so I, I was thinking how, how, uh, uh, see what happened because uh, the main reason we're here is for practice. And that's 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 the that's what is encouraged is is this awareness, openness. Practice of the Dhamma, Buddha, knowing the truth of the way it is, the Sangha, those who practice in the right way, the, the three refuges. So, and that, of course, up to you what you do with it. There's nothing you can't, you know, it's, it's how willing you are, how, how uh, open you are to using the conditions here for awakened awareness. So I offer this as a reflection for this evening. <laughs>